The first step to fixing a problem is admitting the problem. Don't know who first said that, but it's pretty true, isn't it? The first step to fixing a problem is owning up to the problem. So, for example, as I understand it, at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, one of the first things you do is you go around the room and each person introduces themselves with the words, Hi, I'm, I'm Bryson, or whatever your name is. Hi, I'm Bryson, and I'm an alcoholic. Because admitting you are one is the first step to dealing with it. Friends, I'd like you to turn to the person next to you and I want you to introduce yourself with the words, Hi, I'm so-and-so, I'm, Hi, I'm Bryson, and I'm a sinner. Off you go. Now I don't know how you felt about doing that. Maybe that felt a little weird. Maybe the person next to you doesn't look all that friendly and so it felt a bit awkward. There was a fair bit of laughter so I'm wondering whether we meant it. Because you see, when the Apostle John first wrote the letter of 1 John, there were people going around who didn't mean it. They would have either refused to have done it at all, or at least they would have mouthed the words without actually meaning them. Because when John wrote this letter, there was quite a dangerous version of Christianity going around the churches which downplayed the seriousness of sin. In fact, it sounds like there were some people who were even suggesting that certain sins didn't even exist. And that as long as you somehow kept your mind pure, you could do anything you wanted to with your bodies. Which sounds a little weird, I know, but it's not without its appeal Hey, eat what you want, drink what you want, have sex however you want. doesn't really matter. As long as you think the right things, it doesn't actually matter what you do with your body. Now, you see, from God's perspective, that's a really dangerous attitude because from God's perspective, we are all sinners, both because of what we think and what we do. And it's really important for us to come to terms with that because admitting a problem is always the first step to fixing the problem, which is basically what this morning's passage is all about. It's a passage where the Apostle John now turns to urge his readers to admit to the problem of sin. And just like last week, he wanted his readers to know the truth about Jesus, that he really did exist... Well, this week John wants his readers to know the truth about sin. It really does exist and it's serious. But it's a problem that God has provided a wonderful solution for. Let's see how it works under the headings of the truth affirmed and the truth applied. Again, it's the same as last week because that's pretty much how John's mind works throughout this letter. The truth affirmed, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Now light is often used as an image throughout the Bible, although it's an image that can mean slightly different things depending on its context. For example, in John's Gospel, John famously describes himself as the light of the world. And by that, Jesus meant that he was the one who can lead the world to salvation. 
You know, like just uh, the light from a torch can lead you to safety out of the bush on a dark and dangerous night. Jesus claimed that he was the one who could lead us to safety out of a dark and dangerous world. It's the light of the world. But here in 1 John, John describes God not as the light, but simply as light. In other words, John's focus is not so much on something that God does, so much as something that God is. And in that sense, God being light, it's a reference to his goodness, to his purity, that God simply radiates perfection. It's picking up on the whole idea that wickedness and evil is often associated with darkness, isn't it? Now, people use darkness at night to, to hide their crimes. We will sometimes speak of, of people having a dark secret in their life. And we use that phrase to refer to things that we're ashamed of, things that we'd like to be hidden from other people, the, the things that we'd be just humiliated about if other people knew about it. Friends, God has no dark secrets. He is perfect. He is holy. There are no lurking shadows in God. When you draw near to him, what you find is purity and holiness and honesty and openness. When you draw near to God, what you find is utter, total goodness. He is light. There is not a shred of darkness in him. And you see, that truth, that is the bedrock foundation upon which a proper understanding of sin is built. John's point is that in order to come to terms with the existence of sin in us, we firstly need to come to terms with the absence of sin in God. And he spells that out with three important observations, three clarifications which apply this truth that God is light. Each application is introduced with the phrase, if we claim, and the first one comes in verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. Now, to say God is light is a reference to his goodness. Then to say that someone is walking in darkness, John is referring to someone who is living in wickedness. This is someone living in ignorance and rejection of God. This is someone who likes the darkness around them because it covers, hides the evil things they do. But the really disturbing thing about this person that John has in mind in verse 6, the quite paradoxical thing really, is that this is also a person who claims, claims to be in fellowship with God. In other words, John's got in mind here a person who says that they're a Christian but whose life doesn't show it. What he's got here in mind is the sort of person who can't be bothered reading their Bible And even when they do have it read for them at church or in a small group, they can't be bothered changing their life in obedience to it. John reckons such a person is a liar. Their life is a sham. Because remember, God is light. God is without wickedness. How on earth can a person be living in wickedness, therefore, and figure that they've got anything common with God? It's a nonsense. Now, this is actually a very big topic in uh, 1 John. This whole idea of saying one thing and living another, that's a very big issue that he'll spend a lot of time on. We'll actually come back to it next week. 
For the moment, though, in this section, John seems most interested in explaining how that whole situation could come about in the first place. I mean, how on earth can someone become so deluded as to think that they're a Christian when they're living in wickedness? What on earth is going through someone's mind to to, to, to actually think that they're in fellowship with God when they're in darkness? Well, John's point is that that is tragically very possible if you are not clear about sin. Which leads to the second of his if we claim statements, verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, you see, that's when we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. A mate of mine has a neighbour who went to jail for killing his wife. Didn't kill my, neighbor, uh, my mate's wife, the murderer killed his own wife. And after he'd been convicted and sentenced, my friend went along to visit his old neighbour in prison. And he actually quite bravely ventured to ask him how he felt about the whole thing. He must be feeling pretty bad about that. To which the guy remarkably said, no, not really. It's, it, it's not as if I, I'm as bad as the other people in this place. It's not as if I'm a child molester or anything. And hey, look, the marriage was on the rocks. My wife reckoned she was going to take the kids away from me. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Here's a guy in prison for something that most of us would figure is pretty serious. But from his perspective, it's not all that bad. It's not all that bad, really. There were mitigating circumstances. There's others out there that are worse. And isn't it the way that we always do that? Okay, not as murderers, but that's what we do. We kid ourselves that, hey, we're okay. It's everyone else that's worse than us. There's there's people in prison. Well, at least we're not that bad. And we compound the problem by, by doing what the guy in prison did and coming up with all these reasons as to why we do what we do. I'm like the way I am because that's, that's how my parents treated me. I'm in this relationship because my marriage partner doesn't understand me. I had to lie. It was the only way out. It's not really stealing. No one's going to notice it. It's not as if it gets used anyway. Well, I broke the speed limit. It was really late at night and there was no one else around. And you see, we rename temptation as a mitigating circumstance and then we rename sin as a lack of judgment or perhaps even a condition that we've got no control over. And the end result is that we subtly undermine the seriousness and the reality of sin. And John is lovingly saying to us, hey, that sort of thinking is just delusional. You're walking in the dark and you just don't realise it. You've been hanging around in the dark for so long and your eyes are so accustomed to it now that you're not even thinking that it's dark anymore. And therefore, do you see the importance of that foundational truth about God being light? It's critical because instead of thinking up excuses for why we do things or instead of congratulating ourselves that we're not as bad as Adolf Hitler, the reality check is go and stand next to God for a while and then see how good you seem. Because you don't boast to NASA scientists that you can make a paper plane. And you don't boast to Michelangelo that you can do stick figures with crayon. And you don't boast about goodness to the God who is light. 
in whom there is no darkness. You ever had that experience where you've been out in the bright sunlight and then you come indoors and everything's dark, isn't it? Everything's really gloomy. It's what it is with God. When you see his purity and consider and meditate his goodness, that he is light in whom there is no darkness, and then you turn and think about yourself, suddenly we're pretty dark and we're pretty gloomy. But there's more. Because to underestimate the seriousness of sin, it's, it's not just delusional because you haven't understood that God is light. It's also that you're calling the light a liar. Verse 10, the third of the if we claim statements. If we claim we have not sin, we also make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in, in our lives. See, the bottom line to all of this is that no matter what we reckon, God reckons we're sinners. And unless you agree with that, you're basically calling God a liar to his face. And yet, hey, look, talk to Joe Average down the street, they'll tell you that heaven is all about uh, you know, keeping the Ten Commandments and keeping the Golden Rule and then at the gates of heaven God will look at your good points and he'll look at your bad points and if your good points outweigh the bad points then you'll get in. But you see, God has actually gone to a lot of trouble to tell us that that's not how it works. Last week, John explained how he got to be with Jesus, God in the flesh. And so you see, God, John got to hear firsthand what God reckons about sin. And God reckons we're all completely sick with it. And we need to come to Jesus for healing. Which is why Jesus came in the first place, to die on the cross, to provide forgiveness. And so to go through life thinking that sin is not all that serious, bowling up to heaven thinking that, you know, you'll be able to get in and you're okay with God because your good points are going to outweigh your babble, that, that's an incredible act of rudeness to God. I mean, what, do you reckon God got it wrong? Do you think he overstated the case and therefore it was a bit of a mistake to send Jesus? Do you reckon he's a liar? He's the light. You're starting to feel the sense of danger when you don't come to terms with sin. It is delusional because compared to the God who is light, we are dark. And secondly, you're calling the light a liar because he reckons sin matters. He reckons it matters so much that it's going to take Jesus' death on the cross to pay the penalty for it. And therefore, worst of all, by far the greatest tragedy in all of this is that if you don't come to terms with the truth about sin, you actually miss out on the help that God offers for it. Because remember the first step to fixing a problem? It's admitting it. And that is John's intention here. See, all this stuff about owning up to sin, he's not writing it so as to give his readers a guilt trip. He's writing it so that they will be comforted with the forgiveness that can come through Jesus. He wants them to own up to the problem of sin so that they won't be led astray by false teachers who reckon that sin doesn't really matter. He doesn't want them to be led away and miss the wonderful solution to the whole problem. It's a solution that's been on the tip of his tongue all the way through this section. Chapter 1 verse 7. 
If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And it all culminates in chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence, Jesus Christ the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. See, sin is real and it's serious, but the good news is that it can be removed. It can be forgiven. When we admit the problem, God will fix it. Jesus can cleanse us. Jesus can purify us from all unrighteousness, we're told there. He did it at the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, as John describes it there. Because at the cross, Jesus took on himself the punishment our sins deserve. We've been singing about it all morning. And it's a wonderful truth. A colleague of mine tells the story of a priest in the Philippines who for many years carried the burden of a secret sin that he had committed in Bible college and of which he was so ashamed he'd never mentioned it to anyone. He confessed it to God. He'd repented of it, but he was still shamed by it and he had no sense of peace, forgiveness. Well, in this priest's church was a woman who claimed to have visions where Jesus would come to her in her sleep and he would talk to her. The priest was pretty sceptical of this sort of thing and so as to test her, he asked her that the next time she spoke with Jesus to ask him what was the sin that he had committed in Bible college, the one that he kept secret all these years. The woman agreed. So a few days later, the priest asked her, well, did Jesus come and visit you? Yes, he did. And did you ask him about that sin I committed back in Bible college? Yes, I did. What did he say? Jesus said, he doesn't remember. I like that story. I don't know whether she really chatted to Jesus or not. But it's what Jesus would have said. I don't remember. Because you see, that is the comfort that the Apostle John wants his readers to know. He wants them to realise that confessing your sin, yes, it may take courage, but it will always lead to cleansing. It will always lead to comfort. And it would be tragic indeed to miss out on that. Evidently during the final stages of hypothermia, you know where someone is sort of freezing to death, the, the sufferer starts having hallucinations and they can in fact become convinced that they're not even cold at all. They think that they're actually burning up with heat. And so many victims tear off their clothing and their gloves and they even crawl out of their sleeping bags and there are plenty of stories of mountain climbers who have been found dead, half naked, lying in the snow outside their tents. Because even though they've actually been freezing to death, they thought they were burning up. 
such is the insidiousness of hypothermia. This morning, God is warning us about the insidiousness of a spiritual hypothermia, of thinking that you're in fellowship with God, of thinking that things are all nice and warm and cuddly with God when they are not, because you are in fact living in total darkness, for you have not owned up to the reality and the seriousness of sin. And that is the last thing John wants for his readers. He wants them to take the reality check, to see that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. For ironically, the fact that God is light, the fact that he is good and pure, the fact that that might emphasise the darkness of our sin, the irony of it is that it's the very goodness of God that also leads to the rescue of our sin. For the first step to fixing a problem is admitting the problem. And when you admit it, God will fix it. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth's not in us. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful. He is just. He will forgive us. Hi, I'm Bryson and I'm a sinner. Did you mean that earlier on? Really? I'll pray.